So I said, in order for us um, to preserve what we were going to do for the next 50, 100 years, and I'm putting in so much effort and protect ourselves, we need to start afresh. Um, it's not that I don't respect my grandfather's heritage and what he has built, but you keep the legacy, but you start afresh. So that's what we did. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that philosophy was crafted by Nicole Ong, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Singapore's Food Bank, who shares today how to start fresh while maintaining the legacy. So on today's episode, Nicole speaks out about her treatment as a young female executive, how to pivot digitally during a crisis, and why food can make all the difference. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Nicole Ung. Enjoy. Well, let's get this show on the road. <laughs> then five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Nicole Ung, uh, the co-founder of Singapore's Food Bank, as well as an entrepreneur of six food companies there in Singapore and around the entire world. Please welcome Nicole Ung. Nicole, thanks for being with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So, Nicole, you're pretty big in the food. I see you've been around a lot of food almost your entire entrepreneurial life. What gave you, where did the taste for food come from? Um, that's a, that's a very nice question to start this day off with. Um, it's 7 a.m. right here, right now. Um, I think my affiliation with food really started um, very much early on. And I would say it's in my genes. My grandfather actually came from China to Singapore in 1934. Uh, and he actually started the food distribution business in order to survive. Um, actually, he came here after his first wife passed away. So he brought my younger auntie with him. Uh, and then subsequently, he married my grandma, had another nine children, and then settled down in Singapore. So we've been around longer than Singapore have been. <laughs> and what happened was he was selling all the food to all the street hawkers. That was in the 50s and the 60s, pre-post-World uh, War II times. And then my uncles was in the business and um, they developed the food service model uh, where similarly to like Cisco Foods, I, I, I guess after World War II, everybody was like pivoting to new businesses. So that was exactly what we, we were doing along with the industrialization of Singapore and opening up the ports and things like that. A lot of tourists, hospitality. So my uncles um, started selling food to the hoteliers. And, uh, and that was it. And so we've been around for 80 odd years, but I have to say something. Um, my late father... Uh, who passed on three years ago, was the most entrepreneurial of the lot. Uh, he was the youngest of, um, since today is about leaders, right? And I like to share um, his story because to me, he's, he, he is that true blue entrepreneur. So uh, in, the, in 1977, basically after dropping out of school, he started his own trading company. Uh, and back in the day where trade was much easier, right? Um, less sanctions and all that kind of crap. <laughs> I, um, my, my dad basically built quite a nice empire by the early 90s. So he was doing everything from movie making uh, 
We had a seafood trawling business in Cape Town. We were managing a duty-free shop in the Maldives and we had a, a Swatch Watch, we were a Swatch Watch distributor uh, in the 80s. Yeah, and then we had 25 offices all around the world. And then came the 97 crisis. Mm. The Asian currency crisis. For any one of them listening, um, you would remember 97 crisis. I was not even in university yet. Um, basically, our entire family lost the 250 million US dollar value business uh, to nothing. So we went bankrupt. I was there when the banks came to seize the house. So coming back to your to your uh, question of why food is so important, because that was the only business that my dad managed to ring fence and to keep. And uh, it was my grandfather's business. And compared to everything else that he built that time, it was like $5 million. So it was a drop in the ocean. But it was enough for my uncles to just get on with their retirement, you know, for my dad to do something. And uh, I was just entering university then. Um, That impacted me greatly. And um, alongside with that, uh, from a very young age, I was also struggling with eating disorder. Mm. I think like... For some of the leaders out there, I don't know whether you you resonate with this, but and you have this perfectionistic streak in you, right? Uh, and you expect a lot. And being a female um, in in Singapore and coming from a good school, um, it's a fine balance between um, perfection, doing well in school, being an all rounded female, uh, and a- attaining the grades that that you need too to get on further in life. So that was me, and uh, I, I struggled since eleven. Uh, so food is very, very close to my heart. And of course, um, our family being in food distribution business, we, 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 lo- we love to eat. So it's, it's been in our DNA. Yeah. That's an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing. And I know you're doing some work right now with, with food disorders. So let's get in that mm-hmm. a little bit later. But stay on this topic. Growing up in a family business household, what was that like? Was your family traveling all the time? Uh, how did you deal with the pressure of, of that environment? And what were yeah. some of the cool things that you could share with our audience today? Yeah, you know, like all family businesses, like what you see on TV or on Netflix right now, um, it's complicated. It's never easy. And um, it's even a little bit more difficult simply because um, I, I was a very young female when I joined the business. And so because of the, the bankruptcy and everything else, um, it was there was no succession planning. They just got on with that small business, you know, as per what it is. The hotels were still buying from us. And uh, because my dad was the second youngest of nine children, um, I mean, it was never up to him, right, to bring in a successor, so to say, as well. But nobody else was really interested. My cousins were already working in big banks, you know, they were in Citibank, Merrill Lynch and all that. Uh, and the food business wasn't the sexiest, right? I mean, imagine working in a warehouse all the time, sweating it out. You know, uh, Singapore is sweaty all the time, right? I mean, it's 365 days of humidity. Um, but uh, yeah, so I graduated in 2000 from NUS, from the National University of Singapore. I had a arts and social sciences degree. Uh, and then I worked outside for two years. I was actually working in a media company. So, uh, and then came, to, which, which I have to share this because it's so related to the pandemic right now. I joined the business during SARS. Um, and uh, that pandemic was uh, wasn't definitely wasn't something like that right now. Very contained within Asia, uh, and most of the hoteliers and the restauranteurs, we could all see the end of the tunnel, so to say. So unlike now, where the tunnel seems like it's going forever, um, and uh, but it was an interesting time. So I joined during a crisis, um, eighteen years ago, 
Um, most of my uh, older relatives actually gave me two, one year to survive. My uncle actually told, told me in my face that, hey, Nicole, you know, uh, you're a girl. Most of the business owners are, are male. Most of the chefs are male. And most of them are like double or triple my age because they were all mostly in their 60s already when they own businesses. I give you one year to survive. You see how long you can survive. So this is the exact tone that he told me. And um, being the 23-year-old, and that time I had long red hair, I wore three to four-inch heels. I guess nobody really took me quite um, seriously, but I was the only salesperson. I was uh, developing the whole ERP system. Um, I was the one who implemented the back-end technology uh, and, uh, and everything for the business. Because when I, jo- when I joined the business, everything was handwritten in a little notebook for invoicing. I think the very... For all of you who are so young, you probably have not seen such saddle stitch, uh, carbonated, auto-carbonated copy note. Yeah, never. <laughs> and um, even up till the, the 2000, right? I mean, we were using so much like fax machines, which I think a lot of you have never heard of. You know, uh, dot matrix printers that goes... Yeah, it was a strange world. But actually, if you think about it, it's not that long ago. It's, it's 18 years. So I, I came in and then my dad said, hey, you know, you want to learn about the business and can you help me digitize the business? And that was it. That was 18 years ago and there was no turning back. And, um, and actually, when I joined, there was like 30-odd employees and uh, 99% are male with the exception of some of the finance stuff and uh, one other customer service lady that was helping to generate orders. But I knew early on that um, we were not just a distributor or a food trader. We are very much a food service player. So how it is like, uh, like for example, the, the, the U.S. foods, right? And then you've got Cisco Foods in, in the U.S. as well. So they are huge food service players. Um, we don't have that in Asia. So we were relying heavily on wholesalers and some distributors. So um, I said, hey, you know, there's so much more in Asia that we can actually do to professionalize the entire food service environment. So that got me really, really interested. And um, so after chugging along the business for a few years under the old company, uh, the previous company was called Ng Chai Mong Marketing Private Limited. So um, Ng Chai Mong is Wang Zai Mao in Chinese, and it means um, the Wangs are forever prosperous. So it's not my grandfather's name. Okay, it's just that. Um, I decided to do something very um, dramatic, which is why I call myself a entrepreneur, because um, I set up food services, which is the one of the companies that I run now, and I acquired the family business. So that was in 2007. Um, So coming back to your question, how is it working in a family? Um, When you are in debt, you know, through the bankruptcy and all that, we owe banks, we own personal debts. Um, I I was helping my dad to pay off a lot of loans and debts, you know, and it goes into the 50 millions kind of numbers. So I said, in order for us um, to preserve what we were going to do, for the next 50, 100 years, and I'm putting in so much effort and protect ourselves, we need to start afresh. Um, It's not that I don't respect my grandfather's heritage and what he has built, but you keep the legacy, but you start afresh. So that's what we did. So um, in 07, um, I just set up food services and we actually bought over the family business. It was an arm's length transaction. Um, so we paid my uncle's a retirement fund, you know, uh, and then I, I managed from there. So in 07, we were like a startup. 
but in a 70-year-old body. And um, and we we revamped the branding. You know, we were using black. Black is a taboo thing in Chinese. You know, and but I was running a food business in a black truck, and uh, everyone was saying this this girl is crazy. Like you know, and um, definitely no banks, no no bank support as well because we started from ground zero, and uh, but it was the best decision that we've ever ever made. So uh, and um, yeah, so very much we would like to start up. So from there we started food services. We currently serve about close to five thousand FMB players um, with very small drops and deliveries. Uh, and then um, after that we also opened our retail distribution arm. We also moved into logistics and now actually we own our own building. So we have X properties. Um, yeah, we wanted to build a playground for anybody that is in the FMB space. So we run actually a 250,000 square feet uh, warehouse. It's a co-warehousing, co-cooking, co-office, uh, co-innovation hub. And um, so basically it's for anybody to have fun and to develop your own brands as well. Yeah. Nicole, that's, that's, it's, it's impressive. It is an impressive transition. I mean, that was your role to you were tasked with digitizing an industry that has been around since the dawn of time. Now, what were some of the challenges you ran into during that transition? There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, maybe explain to our audience how the food industry kind of works and uh, what digital transformation you went through. Yeah, um, that's a very interesting question. You know, back in the day, um, most of the chefs, they were placing the orders via the phone. Um, there wasn't really a back-end data system. And I, I'm, I'm very sure it was the same all around the world. Everybody just relied on their own brains. So the procurement bias, even of the largest hotels and the largest food groups, right? Um, basically, all the prices and the products were all in their minds. So in... What happened during SARS time and during that era, you know, just in between whether the IT bubble burst and technology developments, um, everyone was forced to put that data into a server instead. Um, and I still remembered um, something quite interesting because um, most of the most of the uh, customers or the the people that we're actually training. Um, are not able to, are not able to, sorry, give me a second. Huh? Yeah, take your time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, basically during that time, um, a lot of people um, did not even know what the mouse was, especially in my industry. So they was like, what is a mouse? So I had to train everybody for what's a CPU and what's a mouse. Uh, and then most of them were Chinese educated. So I remembered that not only was the hotels and the FMB people um, evolving and changing their business, um, even all the customer service, we had to train them. Um, yeah, and so we took actually two years. I remembered very clearly. I met 11 vendors of different back-end IT systems, choosing one that was the most simple for someone who doesn't even know anything about ERP systems to use. And then after that, um, really gave them the full-on training about what's a mouse, what's a monitor, what's a CPU. Uh, for those of you listening in, you must be, oh my God, like what era is she staying in last time, right? But um, those were the people that I dabble with. And, um, you know, ironically, there are still this group of people in the world, um, even for very developed countries where they still rely on manual labor. Uh, 
Um, and this is very true in the hospitality sector. I, mean, I must say, maybe some of those that are in the 60s that are not highly educated, like not some of us that has been lucky enough to be, you know, educated. Um, there are some set of these people all around the world, you know, that um, they still doesn't know much about technology. They, they know service, they probably know how to press the cash register, um, but technology is something very new to them and something that due to the pandemic, at least in Singapore, they have been forced to learn. So our government has been giving out and dishing out free smartphones to every elderly, even in their 80s, mm-hmm. and they've been installing like free Wi-Fi for every family so that all the kids could uh could actually be homeschooled in it yeah and and they they you know get free laptops and so because you know our country is tiny so they could do all this and uh and and i'm i'm quite yeah i'm quite happy that we actually did that but that's technology for you yeah well maybe keep uh, expanding on this in the food industry with technology how has it been helpful in terms of it uh, you know, lowering your costs as well as improving logistics um, and, and getting a, a product from point A to point B. And also, we're talking about impact here. How have you been able to, I mean, we, we produce enough food to feed people, we just don't distribute it properly, right? So how have mm-hmm. has this new technology, your change has been able to feed more people as well? Yeah, I think a lot of people are... Um, implementing technology because you know they feel that either it's it's cool or nice to have or something like that um but for us uh before we make any changes to the back end because it's a complicated ecosystem so all let's say like we, we serve the marina bay sands right so they use their own procurement system we serve like mcdonald's for example they have their own procurement system in order to integrate the entire universe of, of, you know, both buyers and uh, suppliers, for example, this itself has been something that's ongoing for the last 10 years and nobody has really quite gotten to the bottom of it. Um, and sometimes because our clients expect us to do a lot more for their own system, my team has to do more. So they, they are asking us to do the paperwork and the receiving on their behalf. So they improve their productivity, but they are just basically passing the job to someone else to do. And um, I, I have been questioning a lot of um, our big clients as well. I'm saying, is this fair? Because I'm a small, medium enterprise. I have about 200 employees or less. You know, um, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's more that you can do. I'm hiring people to do your work. So I think in the, in the quest for digitization, this was something that uh, we also encountered. Um, but definitely the data that we have collated through it all. So now we have our own e-commerce. So we deliver to homes as well. Yeah, so people have been shopping like 25 kilogram bags of flour that used to be sold to hotels, right? To be baking at home because that's what they do now, right? When they're stuck at home. So, you know, we've been, uh, we've had e-commerce going. Uh, and with all this data, basically, technology has enabled us to digest and to segment our customers very much um, clearer, very clear. So, I mean, when it comes through the phone, it's not the same because it doesn't leave the trace that you probably... Know. So now you know how frequently this person orders, you know, and uh, how do they order? What's the usual basket size? You know, um, it's something that makes it easily uh, trackable. And the other thing that we also did was we actually forced our drivers to use fleet management. Um, I mean, uh, it's it may, it may sound like, hey, you know, like fleet management, isn't that like you know, a given? Um, no, they, they feel that they know the Singapore streets very well. So they could do 50 deliveries in a day 
and they will do the route planning themselves uh-huh. because we do up to maybe a thousand five hundred invoice daily uh, for a tiny island of Singapore. So they 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 are able to complete it, and I've only got thirty trucks. So you, I don't know how they do it, but they accomplish all the deliveries. But two years ago, we forced them to use a fleet management system, and um, actually, it's very good because it gives me clarity, and actually, it helps me to track my assets as well. And I have to share this story because there was one um, driver that went missing. Uh, and we we're saying, where is this guy, right? His truck was like parked somewhere in the basement. If I didn't have a fleet management system that has a GPS to see where he was, um, I wouldn't be able to know where he is and what, I would have just lost the truck. But anyway, um, coming back to your question about um, impact, uh, this leads me to the food bank, obviously. And I think um, a lot of people are quite shocked and surprised that Singapore needed a food bank. We we are seemingly this uh, tiny little perfect island that doesn't seem to have poor. There's no homelessness, no rubbish, no chewing gum, and uh, every that comes with everything else. Um, I think our poor is uh, properly housed. We've got um, world class um, government housing. The public housing here is fantastic. Uh, and um, and and just to share, you know, before we even get to the food part, is that a lot of them uh, is like one room and two room flats that you can actually rent from the government. It's like twenty dollars a month. Uh, it will come fully equipped with a, a living room, a, a room, a bedroom, and a kitchen. Um, it's twenty five bucks. And you can stay there yourself with your family. Um, and uh, the utilities are all already piped in and everything. There's proper, you know, rubbish clearance and, and the whole lot. And the best thing is these blocks are also served by social workers. So they get visited very regularly. So our elderly are also housed in these um, blocks. And those that have elderly, they are actually have handrails and alarm uh, pulleys and things like that. So if they fall down and all that. So just to share, in case of those of you who have already been in Singapore before, and I say, but I don't see any poor because they, they are placed in very nice and proper housing. So at least their shelter has been taken care of. But Singapore has no minimum wage. There's no poverty line. And we're a first world country. So um, I felt strongly that we needed to find a way to reduce our food waste because Singapore imports 90% of everything that we consume, we only grow 10%. So yes, we have about 187 farms, including some egg farms, vegetable farms, and all that as well. If any of you are interested to set up farms, you can come by to, to Singapore, highly subsidized land. <laughs> and uh, we are going into high-tech farming. That's We are we are basically attracting a lot of great investors for that. Uh, and um, so, but anyway, we, we want to be self-sustaining by 2030. So, Hopefully, we can grow 30% of the food that we require by 2030. But while that being said, we are a free port. So everything that we import, with the exception of cars, alcohol, and cigarettes, everything is tax-free. So, so as all the, the businessmen and the traders, right, they, they, food is the number one thing that they like to import. So they import a lot. So um, I'm not sure whether you know, but Singapore is number one the most food secure country in the entire world. So we are ranked higher than Norway and the UK. We are number one. You could check. I think um, even for this year's index, we are right up there. Yeah, so we are food secure in the sense of where we source our food and ample supplies of food. So all of us, no problem, plenty of food, safe food as well. We've got a very good governing body for that. But we throw away 30% of everything that we import. So being in the food business for so long, 
I saw the, the the kind of food waste that goes around, right? It's it's really ridiculous. And then on the other hand, we've been receiving a lot more requests for donations. Um, they are people are writing in to say that hey, you know, like uh, dear so and so, we are requiring a hundred bundles of food, two hundred bundles of food, and uh, that has been escalating since I joined from uh, 2002. So I said, something must be going on, you know, like the income gaps are widening, you know, people cannot uh, feed themselves easily. And I have to put a disclaimer here as well. In Singapore, you can still get a hot meal for three Singapore dollars. That's under three US. Huh? So it's like two plus US. You can still get a full hot meal, a hot piping bowl of noodles or a plate of chicken rice or something. So I think in other parts of the world, first world countries, very difficult. You probably get a half a donut and a, a washed up coffee or something. But in Singapore, you can get a hot meal. And so therefore, there's a disjoint. Like how come there are still hungry people? So we decided to start the food bank in 2012 together with my brother, um, he, who joined the food business as well in 2008. Um, I the, the biggest joke is when we wanted to register the name the Food Bank Singapore we were rejected a couple of times by the Singapore authorities and this showed how little they knew about food banking the officer actually told me hey you know uh, Singapore no more banking license that's what she said and and I that's it. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, you cannot open another bank here. No, no more space for another bank. I said, well, I'm not. Being, I'm not going banking. So I I gathered, you know, uh, from feeding America and all the data and the and whatever that we are learning from overseas. And uh, we told the officer. I said, hey, this is the kind of bank that I want to start. We're an NGO. We're a charity. But we started that, and um, it was a small, humble beginning. It was just me and my brother wanting to give back, wanting to motivate our larger um, food companies that work alongside with us, like the Nestle's and the Unilever's of the world, that surprisingly does a lot internationally, but they don't donate their food in Asia. So I said, something is wrong. I mean, usually Singapore is where their APEC headquarters is. So we wanted to change this because, for example, in the US, Kellogg's is a great supporter, but they are not supporting anything in Asia, which I find it very, very unusual. So I said, why is there this mindset shift, right? Company culture is company culture. So, but anyway, we bit the bullet. So these two young punks are in from a small company taking on the giants. So we said, okay, let's go out there and ask people, donate your food. Um, don't dump them. Singapore is a very clean location because the way we incinerate products is excellent and it's top-notch and it's very affordable. So you don't see any rubbish around as well. So when we get to that, um, it was very difficult in the first year because nobody really trusted us. They were like, you are in the food distribution business yourself and you're asking me to donate food to you to give to the hungry. Um, they were suspecting that we would be reselling the food. I was like, Okay, okay, so there's a lot of doubt here. That's number one. And secondly, um, liability till today um, remains a very big issue or uh, the fear of liability. So a lot of people, um, um, because Singapore is such a clean place, you know, and we have great systems, um, everyone is fearful that after they donate the food, after they consume it, uh, um, what's going to happen if someone falls sick or they die from food poisoning and things like that. So um, liability maintains, uh, is still a very big issue for us right now. But I must say, in the first year, we managed to collate 
two tons of food and redistributed. It was just two of us writing the deals and everything and then sending out to the people in need. That was in 2012 when I was expecting my first child. Um, and as of last year, 2019, we redistributed 802 tons. So from two to 802. So that's one impact for you. Okay, so we, we started with 60 charities and now we have 360 charities and we are reaching out to more than 250,000 people in Singapore um, through this network. Uh, and our team has um, also grown. So now we have eight full-time staff that helps us to coordinate um, everything else. Uh, but I must say, importantly, is during um, the, the, the pandemic. So Singapore had kind of like a lockdown as well, what we call a circuit breaker. Um, it was just about seven and a half weeks uh, where where we were supposed to stay at home a bit more. Um, and so this was causing a lot of problems, right, for the families in need. Um, so what we did was the food bank, for the first time, because some of the charities are closed, we picked up the pieces to go door to door to deliver meals, hot meals. Uh, and um, I think this is where we created a lot of impact because instead of getting all the donors' money and then getting a soup kitchen to cook the meals, this was what we did. We took the millions of dollars that was donated, we supported restaurants, we bought their food. And so we helped our F&B clients to struggle through that period, took the food for a fixed cost, so it's like four bucks every meal, and then we redistributed these cooked meals to um, the hundreds, thousands of people that we were serving door to door. And um, it started out as a very small target that we have. So over the, the eight weeks, we were planning for 10,000 meals. But through the course of um, April to end of August, we actually redistributed um, one million meals. Yeah, we were quite... Um, surprised that we managed to accomplish that with very little volunteers because now with safe distancing and all that um, the number of volunteers for most charities have actually dwindled as well so we managed to get that going and at our peak in June every day we were dishing out 15,000 meals door to door yeah and um, but you know I learned so much from this exercise as well because when we gave the meals door to door um, people gave us feedback on yesterday's food and that's when we also realize that, hey, they are also humans, right? But usually when we when we do food ration dispatch or meals dispatch, we don't really think of actually what do they enjoy eating? So some, yeah, and I, I think like all of us as well, we eat for a multitude of reasons. You know, it's not just for sustenance. We eat, right. you know, uh, to be happy. You know, we eat for social gatherings. You know, some of us like sweets, some of us like sour, whatever it is. And so therefore we, we, we learned that we have to respect the people when we dish out the food as well. Um, and, and the funny thing was everyone, most of them, 99.9% .9 of them are saying, thank you for restaurant quality food because the food that they've been getting from their soup kitchens were kind of like substandard. It was like healthy, but yucky. And they were like, okay, thank you for... And so they, was, and they were so glad with the variety. And because we serve everyone from the elderly, from four different races to young children, also different, different backgrounds and races and different ages as well. Uh, and um, so they were also glad. There was one day we were dishing out fish and chips. And, you know, they were so happy to be receiving fish and chips. So we saw the, the, the glee in the kids' eyes as well. And um, that, for me, was the biggest impact. It's not about the statistics. 
It's not about how many you have fed, but you know, on a social aspect, a psychological aspect, what else have the food bank brought to them? So, you know, usually I know globally now we're really trying to say how many more mouths we need to feed, how many more tummies we have to fill. But the fact is that food is a very social thing and it ties very closely to emotional well-being. So in times, in stressful times like we are right now, um, it is even more important to be to be attached and geared up to that component of, of feeding as well. Um, because not only through food can you increase people's healthy status, right? How healthy they are um, through nutritious eating or guiding them through nutritious eating, but importantly to make them happy. So the food bank from time to time, we dish out things like chocolate bars, Ferrero Rochers, you know, yummy stuff. Uh, and now uh, in Singapore, actually, and around the world uh, for Chinese, we're celebrating the Mid-Autumn Festival, which is the mooncakes. So if, if any of you, you know, you have this sweet piece of cake and so it's once a year, you look at the moon and then you appreciate and you eat all these different mooncakes. So in Asia and in Singapore, it's a big thing. So all the elderly are waiting for a piece of this mooncake. It can cost, the cake is about this size and it can cost about 25 bucks for one piece. So for some of them who cannot afford it, that's like luxury. So every year, we make it a point to give out as many of these mooncakes as possible. Yeah. Nicole, that is incredible. Wow, what a pivot during a time like that. And I mean, I know you already mentioned the Asian currency crisis and what that did to your organization, how you had to pivot initially from dropping all the other lines to now just food to now the the pandemic happening. And right off the bat, uh, you made the transition. Now, I had a little struggle in the beginning with people saying, oh, you're a for-profit company. Why are you helping out? Uh, doesn't make sense to me, but I can see it. And now, now you're serving We'll see, 1 million uh, meals, 250,000 people, but you credit it to the happiness, the social gathering. You also said Singapore is one of the only countries that is above the poverty line. There's no food insecurity in this nation. There is food security. How do we replicate a model like this? There's a lot of people thinking out there, I want to transition. I want to feed people. You're saying it's not about the numbers. You're saying it's about the happiness, the social gathering. Uh, and that's what you've learned through being on the ground, in the trenches, asking people what they want, figuring out what they need. How do you replicate a model like this somewhere else? Yeah, maybe just let me um, clarify. It's not that we do not have food insecurity. It's just that the government has never done a study into it. So what we did at the food bank uh, 20 months ago, we paid a quarter million dollars to a university here to study this problem. So, um, in fact, we just released Singapore's first food insecurity report <laughs> and the statistics are not looking fantastic. So, this is pre-COVID. Huh? We're looking at 10.4% of people that faces food insecurity in Singapore. Um, and uh, the biggest issue will remain, um, where are these people? Because they are hidden somewhere. So, this is one. But during COVID times, I think the numbers is hovering close to about one in seven. So it's from one in 10 to about one in seven. But back to your question that I would still like to address, um, the food bank's mission is very clear. And I told my team by 2025, all of you are supposed to get another job because our job at the food bank should be over in the sense that we are here to end food insecurity in all forms in Singapore by 2025. And I think most of the charities, while most of us start out 
you know, with with a very clear goal and vision in mind, uh, in, including the, the the UN and the FAOs and all the big red crosses of the world, we we were here to end something. We were here to do something. We were here to achieve some SDG goals. We were here to to do some, but it's always a moving target. And the other thing that I realized about maybe some other NGOs is that they end up in this red race, like how it is, like a business where you are just here year after year, whether is it with huge gala dinners or whatever. I mean, no offense to anybody, but our view is that you're here to fatten your PLs in order to survive longer. But if you're here to end something, you don't need to do that. So you just to you, you just have to have enough budget to survive and to accomplish your mission. So that's that is one big stark difference um, between us and maybe some other NGOs because we have a very clear goal in mind. So now we're putting virtual food banking in place. So I'm creating an app. So awesome. imagine it's like a, a, a Tinder kind of matchmaking process between donors and the beneficiaries. So you swipe left, swipe right, and then you tell them, okay, I want two cartons of apples from here, and I live like 500 meters you know, away. I will be happy, volunteer to pick those stuff up. Uh, and then I can just go by, pick it up, and then reduce food wastage as well. So we are, we are actually launching that virtual food banking app. So if we do it successfully, um, literally it would mean that I do not need so many people to do the paperwork and the matchmaking anymore, which is what we are really doing now on, an, on a daily basis. Um, but I, I, I think we are, we are just lucky that in Singapore, um, uh, we, we logistically, it's very easy for us to redistribute food because we're so small and we are relatively efficient as a nation. But actually, for me right now, um, my bigger vision is to help our neighbours. Hmm. Uh, so Singapore has no natural crisis. We are well protected, no typhoon, no earthquakes, no, no nothing. Um, but we want to help people in Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Myanmar, um, even like, you know, our close counterparts in other small developing countries in Asia to set up their food banks uh, well so that they can also help the people that, that lives in those countries. Because I think Singapore is wealthy enough, both in expertise as well as money, of course. And it's a great place to redistribute food because we are a transshipment hub. I mean, we have one of the, the most active hubs in the world. So um, it's very easy, just a few hundred dollars, we could get a, cut, a, a container load of biscuits, let's say to the Philippines, uh, to India, for example. And in case of, um, if you didn't know, um, Asia now has the largest quantity of food insecure people in the entire world. It beats Africa. It beats, uh, it even beats like Mexico or Brazil or anything. It's Asia combined. We have the largest quantity of people that go hungry on a daily basis. So um, our focus really is to help our neighbours. And uh, we're happy to say that being a member of the Global Food Banking Network, um, they have kind of selected Singapore as well to be the Asian headquarters for GFN. So um, what that means is that we then have an added responsibility to ensure that food banking thrives in this part of the world. Yeah. So does your mission transcend Singapore then? And why is that important to have a long-term vision versus something that's just close to you? Yeah, I... Um... I feel that in order to be a leader and to make a great impact, um, firstly, yes, so like what we did in 2012, we started small. 
and through the trial and error, we, we, we started out, right? So one invoice, one container, one truck, whatever it is. But as we got the momentum, it was important to be even believe, to, to believe ourselves even greater. Uh, and, and we said that, hey, you know, if I can accomplish this successfully in Singapore, I can also make that impact all around the region or anyone across the world if they needed any help. And the thing is that um, we're not saying that we are the wealthiest or we're the largest or whatever, but maybe we have the biggest heart. And it's people that has the generosity in terms of sharing. I think the idea and your mission will actually be propelled even faster. Yeah. Do you think there's a lack of generosity uh, around the world today? And why is that also good for your business model as well to work in other communities, to build those relationships and to show the people that, hey, look, uh, we are, are, are generously giving away some of our surplus uh, to communities yeah. who need it uh, and are in need? Yeah, I, I, I think um, maybe because of the crisis um, that we are in right now, a lot of people have started to look inward, right? Like, what what's in it for me? Um, you know, how can I protect myself? You know, everybody's um, safety mechanisms goes up, right? So unless you're in a position of privilege, like a lot of leaders are out there, so whether we, we, are, we are already running a business that's still doing fine, you know, uh, the question for us or for a lot of us is at the back of our minds, what else can we do to impact uh, other people or, or to start that, right? So, I feel that generosity is important, but more importantly, I think empathy and compassion is also important. And I think, you know, all along people are talking about CSR, about having a value in the systems and all that. My own feeling is that the premise many years ago, maybe 100, 200, 300 years ago, when we first started businesses, the concept of business and companies, right? It was actually like, if you if you just take like a few hundred years ago, if you deep dive, right? Especially in China, for example, like in a village, every different company or business actually function as a, a function of society. That means one of the guy was a butcher and someone sold vegetables or someone helped you to, you know, um, produce your sorts or whatever it is. But everyone was just a function of society. So now if we take that philosophy back to the businesses that we are right now, so other than being um, giants in our own capacity, right? We are just functions of society and we should always have a valued system to serve. And I, I think if you have that fundamental mindset in everything that you do, um, you will manage the business quite differently from just um, anything that's just guarded by dollars and cents. Yeah. So Nicole, let's take an example of some, let's say a shared value or how you're adding value to a supply chain uh, with, uh, where, where was that that ice cream uh, with the chest on ice cream uh, <laughs> here? Corey Moe. Corey yeah, Corey Moe. <laughs> Did a little research on Corey Moe today. It looked pretty interesting. And, I, and that's why I, I think it's really important we explain to our audience how complex the supply chain is for a product like this. How do you add value to the value chain uh, in a process like this? Wow, you really did your homework. <laughs> um, that project... I watched um, a little kid's video, is what I did. <laughs> that, that little cartoon, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Corey Mo. Um, you know, that again, that project was 
forced out of circumstance because as part of um, engaging the family business, my uncles and my dad also invested in the chestnut um, plantation. Mm. So we actually own a quarter million trees in China. So we were growing Japanese grade chestnuts. So this was in the late, um, it was also in the 90s. So um, I, I don't know whether you're aware, but basically chestnut as an ingredient is even more expensive than raspberries, blackberries, or anything combined. So in Japan, it's a very prized possession and every nut is about this size. Right. And so therefore, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge, you know, it's, yeah, it's a spiky nut, but it's, it's really big and it costs a lot of money to, to, to be able for people to afford to buy these things. And you have a quarter million trees that is matured and producing fruits that's 100% for the Japanese economy. And as a lot of us know, the Japanese economy has been flat for many years. It's been more than 10 decades that hardly any growth, nobody's really spending. So therefore, the consumption of chestnuts also dropped off. So when I got into the business, then I was asking my uncles, right? I said, hey, you've got so many nuts. <laughs> what are you going to do with it? So every year, once a year, the nuts are harvested during autumn time. So this is the period where, you know, the nuts gets harvested. And after harvesting, the reason why these Japanese actually brought the seedlings to China to grow the trees is because it's labor intensive. You actually can only scrape off the, the, the spiky husk with hands. And you can only harvest the nuts, not using equipment, but the ladies actually have to bend down and pick the nuts. So after they pick, we have to get rid of the spiky husk and then we have to get rid of this layer of hairy skin. For any one of us who have seen chestnuts, right? There's this little layer of skin that you need to remove. So they take this little blade, okay? And then they remove it. So during production time, you know, uh, in our heydays, you could see like 2,000 people squatting down by the water and then they were just removing all this. It's intensive. And after that, we had to cook the nuts in a specialized syrup. It's it's um and then the bricks is all tuned up to what the Japanese really wanted. And then we can it into like jerry cans of 17 kilograms. And this is where it becomes interesting. As a commoditized product, they will squeeze you for every dime. The moment you ship it to Japan, they do the final last mile packing into small glass jars. And then the premium is 10 times of what you see in the supermarkets. So basically after the production, so this, this, is, this is what happened. They bought in bulk and then they, they sold it and they repacked it themselves. But then there came a point where the nuts were not selling because nobody was consuming chestnuts. So what happened was I said, hey, let's develop um, uh, and this was the very innocent me in my 20s where I didn't really learn enough. I said, hey, why don't we just take the nut and produce premium ice cream? Because chestnuts were expensive and we wanted to fight with haagen right? Which was like really crazy. So what happened was I took the nuts, I flew to Poland, met uh, uh, an ice cream manufacturer that did ice cream manufacturing for Nestle. And then we were developing the whole ice cream. You know, we took one year and then we created the world's first highest vitamin C, highest calcium and highest dietary fiber ice cream. And we were selling at $16 a pint in Singapore. Uh, and obviously, because we didn't have the marketing money, 
we failed. <laughs> but the whole intense thing from developing Kurimo as a brand to understanding the nuts, um, that's the food business for you. And can you imagine we are just one of the many brands in the entire world that failed? I mean, she, the brand itself, I love her too bit, so I'm still keeping her alive. Um, but how many more brands out there, right, that kind of like wasted food because you, you trial and error. Um, but, but that's the reality of the food industry for you. Yeah. Just understand that now that that so just learning those lessons along the way and then maybe applying those to, you know, failure is okay. Just like you experience with the food bank, you know, never, yeah. never stopping, uh, keep keeping continuing to go. Now, I am very interested in this global supply chain. Like I said, there's a lot of moving parts, Nicole. Uh, you've talked about digitization already. To you, what does the future of food look like? Uh, you're saying you're 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 adding high tech equipment to your farms in China. What's the future of food look like, and how do you think it's going to feed more people? Um, I think during my children's or my children children's generation, um, a Michelin star dinner would be like a pill in a box. Really. <laughs> I hope it will never come to that, though. Yeah, but um, I think at some point, if we don't appreciate the world enough, we we might just end up like that. So, you know, I I can dine a Michelin star and then like, hmm, that's today. But um, I think, I genuinely think that um, people would be more concerned about where their sources of food comes from. I think the traceability part it is even more important. So when you when consumers like you and I start questioning, where does my beef comes from? Right. Where does my vegetable comes from? Where does my fish comes from? Does it come from a sustainable source? How is it fished? You know, what are the waters that is living in? And you know, what's the vitamin content? You know, what's the nutritional content? When people start to ask more questions, the businesses have no choice hmm. but to do their business in a much better way. And um, so I, one of the other projects that I have in Singapore right now is to become the distributor for local farms here, um, where we wanted the, the chefs to change the concept of just buying cheap into buying good and buying local. So we, we are creating a QR code where the chefs can scan and they know exactly when the vegetables are harvested for that day. So maybe it's harvested 23 hours ago and today it reaches their restaurant already. So less carbon footprint, you know, higher nutrition, tastes better. You want a, a spicier veggie or you want a crunchier veggie, you know, the farmers just in your backyard, you actually can do something. So we, we are doing that project. And Singapore also, we have fish farms as well. So we are trying to find a way to tag the tails of the fish so that when the, the, the farms, the, the restauranteurs, the chefs can actually scan the tail and then be able to say, oh, so this fish was caught when and when. It was as fresh as it could be. And um, to start knowing where your food comes from is very important. I think that is going to be um, the biggest shift. Then the other thing is that I'm also in the alternative protein business. Um, I know it's all the rage right now, all the impossibles and the beyonds and the new meats and whatever else um I, I i personally think that at some point the genuine vegans or vegetarians for example even like some elderly like the indians they're vegetarians but they don't eat anything that is fake actually they just consume vegetables so there's two schools of thought i i, I appreciate the fact that alternative protein is um it's kinder to, to the environment at some point because you know it takes less you know meat to produce whatever that we want but until we find that suitable technology which is a fine balance of 
real products in the product because a lot of it now is still made out of mumbo jumbo that you and I cannot pronounce. Um, you know, and, and something that is safe enough for us to actually feed our next generation. So I would rather say that maybe we should consume less in all ways, eat less, question where the food comes from, um, and be kinder to each other and kinder to the earth. I think that's the way that the market will be moving towards. Industrialized foods at some point will need to slow down. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, it's, well, it's, really, it's really good to hear, really positive to hear, uh, because agriculture has such a large impact on the environment. On yeah. uh, on land use, I think it's like smallholder farmers own like thirty percent of the global land here on, on around the world. Uh, smallholder yeah. farmers uh, uh, produce seventy percent of the world's food, also, but are also consists of seventy percent of the world's poor. It's a f- fascinating statistic. Now, how does you mentioned climate a few times? How are you taking into account the the climate? Uh, how how does what is I guess for our audience, what is food's impact on climate change itself? I, I think by what we're doing at the food bank is already helping to reduce um, waste in a lot of ways. Um, so instead of dumping the food, we are giving the food a new lease of life. Um, and because a lot of the food that we actually salvage has um, very long shelf life, in fact, we, we often receive container loads of stuff like that are perfect. Um, and I've shared this a couple of times over the last few weeks. Uh, about four weeks ago, we were blessed with 5,000 coconuts. The coconuts are what you see in like, you know, in a resort. And that's like the the exporter was like, why are you giving us these nuts? He said, yeah, you know, we're supposed to ship it to the Maldives, but there's no tourists now. And so there's no nuts that's required. We are going to donate them. 5,000 fresh raw coconuts, the kind that you would drink with a straw. And yeah, so and we managed to redistribute that as well. So in the food donation process, we've also learned so much of the weird types of food that actually enters our shore. Um, I think the other part of food that a lot of people don't see is the packaging. Mm, yeah. So actually, we, we, we use so much packaging for food. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, uh, from anything from plastics, your tins, you know, sometimes the cans are even more expensive than the, 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 the beans inside the, the, the tins because now metal and resources are actually so expensive, right? It's not the cheapest of the lot. So, but um, I, I think by helping to salvage the food and ensuring the food has a new home, we are already trying to reduce the carbon footprint by giving these foods a new lease of, of life. So this is one. And the other thing that we have also done is to encourage um, large F&B players to donate their cooked food. I think this program is relatively new in the entire world. It's not many countries who have this program. So what we did was we actually salvaged cooked food from like buffet lines, back of house, and then we add those foods and then we donate them out to soup kitchens where they can add them to their meals or their bento boxes or whatsoever. And then um, it helps to reduce their food costs as well. Um, we have we are also launching something quite interesting or we have launched last year on World Food Day as uh, we have rolled out a series of vending machines to distribute food aid. Vending machines. And ours is high-tech vending machines. Okay, so it's not the kind that you see in schools where you have to kick and shove the potato chip to drop down. It's not those. It's really high-tech where there's a video screen and you tap a card and the door opens. And so inside, there will be a cluster of food inside. So because we realize that usually food aid is distributed during office hours, uh, which means that sometimes when you're hungry at night, 
you really have no one to go to or nowhere to go to. So last year, uh, on the 16th of October, we actually launched the first set of vending machines. And this year, we were quite lucky to be blessed with some money from UBS. Uh, and we are actually rolling out more than 35 machines all around the island. So not just dry food rations, but um, early next month, we are launching the cooked food version of the machines as well. And this time, um, we are reducing food waste even further because now a lot of the meals or that the soup kitchen dishes out, right? They just hang it at the door. You know, it's not blast frozen or blast chilled, which means that you have to consume it within the X amount of hours before right. it goes bad. So what we did was, not only do we rescue the cooked food from restaurants, we do we, we rescue all the perishable items as well, like the vegetables and the fruits from the wholesale centers. We are putting it into a dish or a, a kitchen and then we will cook it, put it into like different meal sets and then blast freeze it and then distribute them via the vending machines. After you blast freeze it, it means that it has a 12-month shelf life or more. And the best thing is that there will be variety of food. So maybe I've, I will have a spaghetti, a fried rice, you know, and something. So anybody who goes to the machine to get their meals also can choose what they want to eat on the daily basis. And importantly, the meal is always hot. Yeah, because there's a microwave attached on the side. You can heat it up any time of day. So if you're a security guard, you end work at 11 p.m., you know, I need a, something hot, you know, I want to have some spaghetti or fried noodles or something. I just go to a machine like that. So, and the best part is we're working with the National Heart Foundation to ensure that um, the food is also nutritionally balanced. So there's calorie count, there's fiber content, there's, you know, the, what the vitamins and the nutrition is as well, listed on the packaging. So we are launching that in about 10 days time. Yeah, so we are moving to cooked food as well. And after we learn the setting up of this whole thing, we are hoping to motivate the rest of the food banks in the region, especially in places like Hong Kong, um, to actually install vending machines as well. Because I think in the COVID world that we are in right now, where everything needs to be contactless, this is a great way to distribute food aid. Yeah. Nicole, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And by the way, good luck with that. That's amazing. Uh, it, it seems like there's so many parts going on, but at the same time, throughout the constant theme throughout all these ideas or solutions has been, to me, just simplicity. Everything's been simple. Oh, we, we went with the, the uh, I think it was the UI that was as easy as for our people to use, right? Out of all the others, we went with um, a way to make people happy, uh, went to get meals. Uh, everything has been a simple decision for you to make things easier for other people. Now, what advice would you give to other business owners listening to this who may or may not be in the food industry but are trying to solve these problems in innovative ways using cross-sector partnerships, using uh, partners, uh, anything? What advice do you have for business owners today? I think the world, life, businesses as we know it right now um, – has become way more complicated than it should be. So I think as a business owner, um, your vision, your beliefs, and even the way that you're running your business should be simplified. Um, and in some ways, going back to basics, because at some point, um, we will need to press the restart button on a lot of things. And if you are going to be a successful business, um, we don't always have to fight with the large giants of the world, right? Where they have such an intricate system. But if you're able to bring one simple solution that helps a lot of people to solve their problems, 
you are successful in your own right. And I genuinely believe that that is the role of every business out there. So if all of us solve different things collectively as a community, we can do a lot more good than bad. Uh, ending food poverty, a simple message that transcends more than just your own community. That's a trait of leadership. Nicole, the last question I have for you today on the Real Leaders Podcast is, what is your definition of a real leader? Um, I think a real leader is someone who can, who can cry, who can laugh, who can feel frustrated in front of the team, and yet when um, the situation demands of him or her, will still be able to stand in front of the pack and take the the shots before anybody else. I think, um, like your your header for this podcast, right? Um, being real leaders and being a great leader is just about being real. I think a lot of times we have been asked to live up to fix, you know, or, or, or this facade that we have to build up of ourselves. But sometimes by being real, being vulnerable is a power in itself. And, and, and this is genuinely something that I believe in. If we are true to ourselves, it's less tiring, right? Yeah, you, you're already um, someone that probably have some form of power to make a change in the environment and the, and the company that you're in. But just be real to yourselves and to everybody around you. Nicole, it was so fun meeting you. Thanks for doing this. You brought the energy today. I know it's 7.15 a.m. on a Saturday in, in Singapore. For thanks, So thanks for hanging on. For everyone listening on Crowdcast and on LinkedIn Live, I'm uh, for Nicole Long, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. Stay true to yourselves, people, and always keep it real. Thanks, Nicole. And thank you, good people, for listening to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast with Nicole Ong. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you want to be a part of the action, folks, you want to join live, click the link in this description where you will be taken to Nicole's episode and added to our list to be notified of upcoming episodes with real leaders, folks. Can't get this anywhere else, I promise you. Again, folks, click the link in the bio where you will be added to our list to make sure that you will never, ever miss an upcoming episode with a leader like yourself. And lastly, folks, if you want to be a part of Real Leaders, email us at b at real-leaders.com so you can continue to spread the movement of leaders keeping it real. That's it from me. Thanks for being a Real Leader and stay tuned for the next episode.